0: And I would like to call the meeting to order at eight, uh, six o'clock and I'll start with a roll call. County executive Gardner. Present. Council president Keegan air. Here. Council vice president blue. Here. Uh, Council member Dacey.
1: Here.
0: Council member Donald. Here. Council member Fitzwater. Here. Uh, Council member Hagen, Here and councilmember mckay here great well thank you all for joining us back again um we'll follow the same agenda that we have before with a brief uh coat well maybe it's not brief but a covid19 situation update I appreciate Dr. Weishar from Frederick Health joining us again so that she can provide information uh, when we get to that point in the situation update related to hospitalizations. And then we've got the old business uh, and the upcoming meetings. So without further ado, I would like to uh, share my screen and um, get us started with the uh Presentation. Okay, so that's our agenda and starting on. So the biggest news since we last met was uh, the CDC um, adding a new way of taking a look at the transmission of COVID in our community and adding what's significant about the transmission, because, you know, for a long time we've talked about, you know, what are appropriate metrics, and when we think back to why did we start all of these non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as the physical distancing, the face coverings, and the other strategies that have been put in place a long time ago. And those were all the all of those non-pharmaceutical interventions were put in place out of concern about the healthcare system not being able to keep up with the flow of people going into the healthcare system so the latest metrics or combination of metrics that the CDC is using now takes into account the hospital system of care in providing guidance to a community about what the community as a whole should be thinking about in terms of the risk uh, and it's that risk it's partly the risk of transmission because that's still part of it but it's really the risk to the healthcare system of being overwhelmed um, i realized that it um, is definitely confusing probably to everybody and it took me and my colleagues a little bit of time to try to understand what this new um, metric was or combination of metrics uh, really meant and how it came about. And it makes a lot more sense to me now that I've had a little more time to think about it. Um, But what threw everybody off, I think, was that when the CDC announced this new COVID-19 community level, Frederick County and other counties in Maryland ranked low. And for the community level actions, when a community with this new combination of metrics is rated as low, uh, the recommendations for what to do or how to proceed does not include things that come in to play as the non-pharmaceutical interventions in the medium and the high levels. Um, and I'm gonna move on a little bit, but I, but before I move on to the next slide that talks a little bit more about that, I do wanna say that when we're looking at uh, healthcare facilities, healthcare facilities, the CDC still recommends that they uh, look at what was the prior metric focusing on the community transmission. Because in those settings, they are um, most impacted in their going about their business. They're most impacted by transmission. Um, And so, again, this new COVID-19 community level is really focused for the whole community. What approach should be taken for the whole community? Individuals who have specific risk factors or specific concerns or might be in certain settings, for them, they might want to take actions that are different from what is Um, the guidance for the whole community to take. And of course, at any time that somebody has symptoms, a positive test or exposure to someone with COVID-19, we do recommend that they wear a mask. So the recommendation for those that are in the low COVID-19 community level is to stay up to date with your vaccines, get tested if you have symptoms. Um, When it moves into, for jurisdictions that are in the medium range, like Washington County, Per this low COVID-19, excuse me, per the COVID-19 community level, like Washington County is still in the medium and and uh, the recommendations there at the community level, uh, then start moving into the recommendations for masking and some other things uh, as people move along. So with the masks, again, when this new metric had come out or this new combination of metrics had come out, um, it, a lot of people focused on the mass uh, portion of it. And I do wanna say that it's still recommended that masks be worn by people who have the symptoms of COVID-19 or if they test positive or if they were recently exposed to somebody. But then there also may be people who choose to wear a mask for uh, some time period based on their personal preference, uh, but it's all informed by their personal level of risk, not necessarily by this COVID-19 community level of risk. And of course, businesses can set their own policies. So uh, again, because it's a lot to go through. So what's changed? So that new community level focus, it's based on the case rate. So that's what we had been using to look at the transmission. Uh, But it's also taking a look at hospital related statistics. So that incorporates the old metrics and adds more to it. And it gives an overall recommendation for the whole community. Um, And that's what our dashboard now has, that information on there. And Frederick County is in the low category there so prior to this combination of metrics being used before we were looking just at the case rate and the positivity rate um those are still the uh the case rate is part of uh the new combination metric uh and for healthcare settings um for their taking a look at mass guidelines and others that the old community transmission level is still what's being recommended as frederick county is still in the substantial uh level for the community transmission um you know i know normally uh i don't take questions in the middle and also because it's probably the screen is probably showing just on that but did anybody have any questions about this new and old can't see if anybody has questions, so I'd actually need you to uh, say something. Um, this
2: is Jan Gardner. I have a question, and a, maybe a comment. So our level of transmission for the virus in Frederick County remains substantial. And so the previous CDC recommendation was that when transmission risk or transmission levels were substantial or high, that masks should be worn indoors. So now we've gone to another, we still aren't substantial, but we've said, well, because the hospital has capacity, essentially, the hospital can take care of the community risk if there are a number of people that get infected. So I do think, I don't know, so do you think we should still publish the fact that the community transmission is substantial? Because ultimately I hope it will go to moderate and maybe
0: even to low. Yeah, so I think that still, it still reflects the community transmission and the community transmission, while there uh, is capacity at the hospital system and uh, what appears to be a lower percent of individuals who are testing positive entering the hospital system, it still is nonetheless the community transmission rate. Um, It's maybe not, it it is not as significant as it was before, but still it's a reflection of transmission. And then there are some populations, subpopulations within our community, where for them that transmission does still make a significant um, uh, impact. So for example, the healthcare systems. So if, it. So for healthcare providers who are seeing people coming in who are sick, that that's the job at that healthcare facility. Well, high community transmission or substantial, so substantial community transmission uh, is still substantial. And so for those settings, there's still an expectation that there'll be some substantial amount of potential transmission occurring in those settings. And likewise for individuals who have. Uh, who are at a greater risk for serious complications, they should be taking into account for their individual circumstances, the fact that transmission is still at a substantial level. Now, may, you know, the combination of people being vaccinated and boosted and people who've had prior infections who, if they're more recent, they might have better protection, uh, that combination helps people to, it definitely helps reduce the severity of illness or the likelihood of severity of illness, but it still doesn't eliminate it. So for people who are concerned about when they go out and about, what's the likelihood that someone in a room of 25 is currently
2: infectious to them, that still matters. So- also uh, well, so to me... my question is, should we put that information out on our dashboard so people who are vulnerable, older, at risk, have children under five who can't be vaccinated, whatever their circumstance might be, um, knows that the tr- risk of transmission is still substantial. So if they go into a room of 25 or 50 or some other place, that there is still a substantial level of risk. And they might decide not to do that until they see that go down to moderate or low. If they have these other risks. I feel like we should have that information out there for people. That's really my question okay uh yes, yeah, so we we have a link
0: mm-hmm. to that information on our dashboard, but it's not because uh, I hear you asking the question, um so I think it's not prominent enough, so we'll go back and take a look take a look at that because for individual level uh considerations uh like you said, including the population who they're not eligible for vaccination yet mm-hmm. that for them um they uh, are still at, you know, if they go into a room, so if they're susceptible and they go into a room where there's substantial transmission and they're susceptible, well, um, because they haven't had a prior vaccination, having been previously infected, uh, then for them, uh, it does represent a greater risk situation. Um, You know, one of the things that is a little challenging for us in thinking about how do we communicate this is the potential confusion because, all everybody hears from when they look at the national sites and are reading, you know, the national news is that focus on the new metric. Um, so it it this has presented a little bit of a challenge for us since this came out on Monday. Excuse me, on Friday. To how do we communicate the old and what that means and what this means because they mean different things. I mean the the what they're capturing and uh, the significance of what they're communicating are different. So we'll uh, continue to try to uh, look at that and revise what we have up there and do so in a way that hopefully doesn't make it more confusing, but it helps those individuals who uh, are more either more susceptible to infection or at greater risk for serious complications will, and and that they can also show their friends and families, because we have heard some people Uh, expressed concern that everybody's thinking it's a low risk out there. Uh, But what it is is uh, that new metric is really looking at the hospital capacity and the likelihood of people going into the hospital, but it's um, uh, weighted heavily now on the hospital system, the healthcare system. Versus the old, which was looking at how likely is it that there's somebody in a room who is currently infectious. So yeah, thank you for, uh, pointing that out and we'll. Continue to try to make that more understandable for people. Yeah, council member McKay.
3: Thanks. So if we're at substantial now, what is the, um. You know, just looking at the uh, the data from yesterday, um, and we're showing 10.57 uh, cases per hundred thousand, which basically takes us back to kind of like a an August kind of case rate. Things were pretty low. What what is the uh, uh, the threshold for moving below a substantial rating? I noticed the seven day positivity rate is. Um, you know that's. Oh my god 3.83 so where is the uh like I said where's that where do the where does where do we move off substantial based on that data You're muted
0: Thank you We're in substantial right now based on our case rate I think that was when we dropped to uh 38 or so below uh, so then when we move into the moderate, and I'm going to need my uh, 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 additional uh, helpers, my epidemiology help that's out there, whether, is that at 10, when we get to it's, 10 it's 10 to
2: 50. I just looked it up on the CDC webpage. So moderate transmission is 10 to 50 cases per 100,000 people, or a positivity rate between 5%, and 8%, substantial transmission is 50 to 100 cases per 100,000 people or a positivity rate between eight and 10%. And a high transmission rate is hundred more cases per 100,000 people and a positivity rate of 10% or higher. And I think that may be on a daily basis rather than on the seven day average, that's what's reported. Right, it's daily added up for seven days.
0: So it's the seven day total because like say right now we've had some days where well we were at 35 but i think for today or yesterday um uh but what the cdc is looking at they calculated theirs differently from mdh so all this other time i was focused you know i the mdh calculation for the community transmission rate and it is there they calculate it differently. And so the numbers add up differently. So you can't just. So I,
3: I, I thought I might have heard Jan say 10 to 15 as the case rate per 100,000 is moderate or is substantial.
2: That's 10 to 50. And that's to... the total number of cases per 100,000 population in a week if you add it up every day.
3: oh not okay so what it's
2: not average it's taking every single day's number and adding it up right
3: so what are we actually showing on the website when i when i put my cursor over and so is march 2nd and 10.57 as our case rate per hundred thousand? what is that reflecting
0: so uh i'm sorry i was looking at the cdc site right here uh so on uh The MDH website, they calculate it. It's a seven-day rolling average. So it takes a look at each day uh, and what is... Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it looks at each day, adds up for seven days, that day's number, divides it by seven, and comes up with one number. That's that day's average, the average, and it's a rolling. What the CDC does is it says, okay, how many do you have in a whole week's time? So add up the number of cases Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but not averaging it. So it's like, it's, and so for the past 7 days, so for low, it's below, or let's say our moderate as the county executive Gardner said, it's between 10 and 49.99 per 100,000 persons in the prior 7 days. So say we have 250 folks. So that's 50 plus 50 plus another 25. So if we are, get to a point where we're 125, approximately 125 cases in a week's time or fewer, then we would move into the moderate. And when we look at when might we get there, you know, it, it's hard to say whether we're at a little bit of a plateau right now, uh, but the uh, forecasts, the projections, which I have later in my slides, have us getting at that point three weeks from now you know, maybe before. Uh, They are just projections. Uh, I I do also have to say that more and more people are getting tested through the rapid tests, and those rapid test results aren't included at all in the case rate numbers or calculations. Um, So to the extent that more people are getting tested via the rapid tests, that case transmission becomes uh even more of an undercount it already was an under count because people weren't being tested or people didn't have symptoms or didn't recognize that the symptoms were due to covid so weren't getting tested you know a variety of things but now that we add the at-home tests that people are performing it makes it even um, more um, likely that true cases are not being reflected in the case numbers so an average of 18 cases a day for seven days or 126 total for a week would put us into that moderate transmission. Um, and so if you want, when I go through on my slides, I can show you where what the projections are for when, we've, um, when we might hit that. And so today we had 35 new cases added. Yesterday it was 24 new cases, so it bumps up and down a little bit. Um, um, so we've been in a little bit of a plateau, but it looks like we'll continue to go down a little bit uh, as time goes on over the next couple of weeks. Um, so how about if I go back to the presentation here? And there we go. Um, So one of the other things that had been a question I think we maybe talked about at the last meeting, which is, well, what about other variants that are circulating? What you'll see here is this uh, largest line represents the Omicron that we've had around for a little bit of time. Uh, This pink is uh, what was being referred to as the son of Omicron, which is a misnomer, but, and then here's yet another uh, variation of it. So there has, this hasn't been that rapid of a change, and it still remains unclear uh, what we might be facing, you know, weeks and months from now, but at this point, Omicron's still overwhelmingly the dominant variant that's circulating. So here, this is what we, you know, show on our on our website, uh, and where you were looking at here, the case rate per hundred thousand. So this is pulled from the Maryland Department of Health, and their calculation is a seven-day average. So what is a day's you know, a the average for a day, looking at seven days, and that's uh, 10.57, but uh, and that's a case rate per hundred thousand. And you'll see that our change in the last 24 hours fits in with about where that average is um, with the 35 that we had had. Um, We are continuing to um, experience uh, deaths, unfortunately, that are uh, uh, confirmed. And uh, January was the highest month of deaths that we've uh, had recorded since the pandemic began. Um, Here, these are the familiar charts, and I'm sure all of you take a look at these much more often. We continue to see where Frederick, uh, both the percent positive rate, is higher than the state, and that's not an uncommon uh, position for us to be in uh, for the last almost year or so, where Frederick has uh, been higher than the rest of the state in terms of the positivity. Uh, and then when we take a look at uh, the case rate, we're pretty close to the state average, but um, then this is what I wanted to show you here, the projected cases. So when we look at the projected cases a month ago, it was looking like by the time, oh, uh, this is actually a different uh, time period, but so uh, looking here, the uh, these are day by day by day. And so we should be getting down to 10. The projection uh, is by a couple weeks out by March 22nd. Now, of course, these are just projections, but that we could get down to uh, 10 cases, 10 new cases reported uh, in a day's time. So again, today we had 35, but we could be getting down to as low as 10. So it's still a downward uh, trajectory projected. And uh, looking at, uh, and then so by then, uh, 10, if it's 10 every day, so then that adds up to 70 for the week. So that would uh, put us in the uh, uh, next lower level, that moderate level. Oh, I do have a slide here for the desk just to show you how January was, unfortunately, the month where the greatest number were uh, confirmed and February was still pretty high, almost as high as in December. And uh, we've had a reduction in the numbers of outbreaks at facilities, and um, we still have, uh, thankfully, not seen a dramatic increase in the numbers of deaths uh, that are occurring at the facilities because these are the facilities represented here in this uh, chart are the ones that are skilled nursing facilities and assisted living facilities. and with schools, very few uh, schools, there's only one school at this time that has a uh, confirmed outbreak and only three cases associated with that. So that's a much better situation. And then for FCPS, um, uh, the green is the numbers of students who report testing positive and the yellow is the number of staff. And you can see we are down to uh, about 68 or what they've reported uh, on the 21st was 68 uh students and a small number of staff so moving on when we take a look at the vaccinations that's been an area of great interest uh recently uh, especially looking at the percent of the population age five and older that's been fully vaccinated so what you see on our website is uh the information about fully vaccinated at least one dose given and when we show here the percent of the population that's vaccinated fully vaccinated it's talking about the whole population not just the age eligible population or the uh, a or the population that's eligible based upon their age for one of the fda emergency use authorized vaccines so that's 76 for the whole population but when we take a look at the age eligible population then we're seeing that we have rates um for Uh, The persons who are 65 and older, uh, rated 95% are fully vaccinated, and it goes down, uh, but not that much. When we get to the ages 5 and older, almost 81% are fully vaccinated. And so I would like to remind folks to get the boosters. Uh, And 60% of the Frederick population, 18 and older, have received their boosters, and 75% of persons who are 65 and older. So the boosters uh, do make a significant difference, and they are available at all the vaccination clinics. Um, So this is the hospital. So this is the queuing up for uh, the hospital portion of the presentation. And what you see here is that total number of beds in blue. And uh, in the, I'm not sure the purplish color here, the lower number is the ICU beds. So as you can see, it's a much better situation than where we were at our last meeting, which might've been around here. Uh, And uh, this is what the Frederick Health Hospital's uh, website shows for today. And now, I would like to turn it over to Dr. Weissar for uh, providing an update.
4: All right. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Um, yes, I have a much better presentation for tonight than I have in past uh, past evening. So, um, we have 14 patients that are hospitalized with COVID right now. We are still testing every hospital admission. So, um you know, I don't have the stats for who's there for COVID and with COVID, but um, we are still testing. Um, Seven of those are unvaccinated. So that's a 50% um, rate on that. And um, we have four in the ICU, and all of those are unvaccinated. Two of those are vented. So, you know, much better numbers, um, but COVID still is out there, you know, as as we've seen on the graphs. Um, And so we're we're reiterating with our patients and our staff just about getting um, boosters and remaining up to date on that. Um, COVID is about 7% of our inpatient um, hospital census now. We have 208 patients in-house. So uh, we have, you know, the percentage of what's COVID and what's not COVID continues to to shift, but obviously much more non-COVID now, but we've continued to see fairly high hospital utilization, which would be typical for this time of the year. Um testing volumes at our tent were about a thousand in the last seven days, and that's been um, consistent recently but much less than what it had been historically over the surge um so we are still doing testing at our village um I think I mentioned on a prior call that we did leave crisis standards of care so we um uh, declared the end of that on February the ninth. And then we are continuing to still offer the same services we have been for COVID, the testing, the monoclonal antibody clinics. We have the EV shell, the the pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, We have our COVID-19 long-haul rehab clinic that um, I know I've talked about at the noon calls that Randy has on Thursdays. Um, And so we continue to be here to support the community. Uh, We're having active discussions about what what the crystal ball shows for what the future may hold, and how we um, stand down some of what we've done, but remain prepared to address any future concerns that come up. Uh, so that's my brief report. I'd be happy to take questions if there are any.
0: Thank you, Dr. Weissar. Any questions? Councilmember Fitzwater? And then uh, Councilmember donald
4: um first i just want to thank you for being here again and providing the update and of course i know we're all glad to hear the numbers are significantly different than the past several meetings um i just had a question about um staffing um basically i obviously the you guys are not in the crisis standard of care anymore Um, But I know that staffing just shortages and issues continue to be a challenge in many industries, including in yours. So I was just wondering um, if you have any, if there have been any changes or lights at the end of the tunnel or anything new in terms of feeling like um, the staffing issues have changed at all since our last meeting. I know it hasn't been that long, but. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think staffing has improved, but remains a challenge. You know, our ability to get agency staffing, which is really not what we want to do. We would rather have permanent staffing, but our ability to get agency staffing has improved, right? As the numbers have gone down, there's just more of a supply. So that is good news. Our HR department has been doing a bang up job recruiting. um, And I know that there's been very high numbers of nurses going through our onboarding process and that sort of thing. So there has been positive movement I think it's going to be quite a while till we say it's resolved. Frankly, probably a year or more. You know, I I, 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 it's a little unclear what we're heading into potentially. I think the effects of this pandemic probably remain to be seen fully on the workforce. Thank you for that. Sure.
0: Thank you, Councilmember Donald. Thank you.
4: Um,
1: we're all very, very hopeful that this is the end or is coming to an end, but of course we don't know that. So it might behoove us at this point, I think, to ask you, you know, Frederick Health Hospital, should we see another wave coming? I mean, should we, what should we do now to prepare for a future wave, whether it be next fall or or, or whenever? What? What would you suggest we do to put in place to get ready for another wave if it comes?
4: Uh, you know, my personal opinion is there's, there's sort of external to the hospital and internal to the hospital, right? So I think externally, I think that, you know, as numbers get better, the natural tendency of the human is to move on, right? But I think that we need to continue vaccination efforts. We need to continue to um, make sure folks are up to date I think as an organization, we will continue the discussion um, about how to make sure our staff are protected um, so that we're prepared to address any concerns moving forward. Internally, I think I mentioned some discussions. We've talked about our testing operation at the tent and where, at what point might we move that maybe inside the village versus continuing to have that large drive-through operation? We plan to retain the tent because we don't know what's coming and trying to get a hold of that in the future on short notice could be challenging. So we're gonna let things settle out on that before we make final decisions. Um, and I think now that we're out of sort of this crisis period, I think as a health system, we need to really regroup and think about what, what we've done and what worked well and what would we do in the future um, if when we end up back in this situation. I think whenever there's something like this, there's always lessons learned, you know. So um, I I remain incredibly proud of the team at Frederick. I think they really rose to the challenge and did an amazing job. I know everyone's breathing a sigh of relief and some folks have probably even taken a well-deserved vacation, but um, you're right. I mean, I I think that we would, I would love to think that this is, that we're done. I think there's been a lot of discussions and Barbara may have some more information on the fact that but I don't know that COVID's ever going to go away. I think it's going to end up being endemic. You know, it's just going to be like the flu, it's going to be something we continue to see. Um, but I think maintaining a sense of readiness is what's important, right? Because there was a lot of work to stand up all of the operations at the health department, at the health system, and how do we um, be fiscally responsible? And not continue, you know, we need to be thoughtful about the resources that we continue to invest, but also remain in a a state of preparedness.
1: I guess my question is, I mean, last summer when I saw numbers that didn't look good, I thought we should put in place metrics that said we will go into this level, this level, this level, mask mandates, uh, limitations, and put them in and say, look, when we hit this, this will happen. So we've been through these waves now. Would you suggest we do that as a board of health or would you suggest we wait until we get there and then go through that procedure again?
4: I, I personally, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer to that. I personally think to the extent that you're able to have a standardized process and set expectations for the community. I think that that's always helpful. Um, I will tell you internally at the hospital, we did do that. You know, we, we had a sort of a red, yellow, green type, uh, protocol that we were using to um, inform our staff and to help make decisions that sort of stayed in check with each other so that we were fairly clear that when we get to this point, we're going to escalate by doing these things. But when we get to this point, we would start pulling stuff off. And we've tried to do that internally. And I actually think that's worked really well. So I think as a community, that might be might be a wise, a wise move. Um, so it's It's just hard to say what that right answer may be. But I I think to the extent you're able to um, set clear expectations and, and guidelines, I think that's helpful.
1: Okay. Just for my two cents, I think if we know what our hospital capacity is, if we know, if we see the wave coming, I think we should set numbers so that when it does come, if it ever comes, God forbid it comes again. But if it does come, it's automatic. I would suggest we do that now or anytime you know when we want to have another meeting whatever i know that upsets people hopefully it'll never come but i would rather do that now than wait until the moment happens like december 29th and 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 go through that and if people don't want to do that that's fine but that's just my two cents
0: county executive
2: gardner i have a, a follow-up question i believe i asked you the last time um we were gathered um, I wanted to ask you about the uh, treatment therapies uh, for COVID. I mean, we obviously have more tools in our toolbox than we have had in the past, and I know there was a medication, a pill that uh, physicians could prescribe, and that it really wasn't very widely available. You know, in in December and January, mm-hmm. do you have any sense of whether that is is uh, more available than it was, and what that might look like in, in moving forward?
4: I think generally it is more widely available, but honestly, I, I don't know. Okay. I, I personally have not looked at the inventory numbers. I think there is access to that on um, Maryland's website. I don't know, um, Barbara, if you have any sense. I have not, I've not really heard anything from our primary care physicians of having trouble ordering it. And I do know I've seen publications where additional locations have been added. Um, So I think that there is more inventory out there, but I just don't know the exact numbers to say with certainty. All right, thank you. Could you speak to um, the uh,
2: incident of the flu this
4: um, season? Like flu activity has been low, there's some around. I don't have the specific numbers of what we've had at the hospital, but I know what Dr. Culpepper has presented on his noon calls, he generally touches on influenza as well and influenza activity has been low. So presumably, you know, in some part due to some of the mitigation methods that are in place. Um, I do think to the conversations made earlier uh, that Dr. Brookmeyer mentioned earlier about the school system and, you know, I think everyone is getting rid of their masks and uh, the masks were also helping us with flu and other illnesses in the school system. So it remains to be seen what happens, I think, once the masks are gone. Okay.
0: THANK YOU. SURE. YES. THANK YOU. I WAS TRYING TO PULL UP THE SLIDES. SO um, I DO HAVE SOME SLIDES THAT I'LL SHOW THAT I ADDED uh, RELATED TO COUNCILMEMBER DONALD'S QUESTION. AND THEN um, I WILL ALSO POP IN A SLIDE THAT TALKS ABOUT THE FLU. Um, But while I'm getting all that ready, does anybody else have any other questions for uh, Dr. Weissar? Okay. All right, well, I'd like to thank you for joining us again. Oh, okay, yeah, that was a wave goodbye. So uh, thank you for joining (laughs) us. Thank you, have a good evening. Thank you. All right. And uh, as I was attempting to add the slide with the image, it is just rolling and scrolling. So now my uh, my system is frozen right now. Uh, but I'll see if my uh, let's see what's no nope. okay. All right, well, sorry, as I was trying to add the, okay. uh, Trying to add the picture for the flu. I'll show you another way when I get to that. And now I can go back to uh, slides. Okay. Oh. Slides are not advancing now that I added all that. So, if you all don't mind, let's see. Still, okay, now, uh, all right. I can see the slides advancing. Go back. Now all of you should see it, I hope. So what I added here was, in thinking about Councilmember Donald, what you talked about. Um, so the CDC's uh, new COVID-19 community levels are designed, I think, to respond to, and sorry, it is small font, and I was quickly trying to do a snip and put it in the slide. Um,
1: Combined with my poor eyesight,
0: yeah. yeah. But these are designed to help guide what the community as a whole might want to do for the whole community. Again, recognizing that individuals, uh, their situations might warrant taking actions at a different time than this at an earlier time. But when we move to the medium, what you see here is that this is when persons who are immunocompromised that now in, in the medium level of COVID-19 community level, medium, that that's when persons who, whose immune systems don't work well, that it's recommended that you check back in specifically with your healthcare provider. And, uh, and then that's when it's also saying that uh, if you're around somebody who's at high risk, you know, please start thinking about uh, wearing a mask when you're around them, maybe testing before you're around them. uh, And then of course, staying up to date on the vaccine. So there are some things that continue throughout, which is staying up to date with the vaccines and boosters, Uh, think about that ventilation, and then follow the CDC recommendations for isolation and quarantine. But so what's different between the low and the medium is adding in right now for the persons who are at greater risk for a severe disease or who know their immune systems don't work well, for them to start taking actions. And now this column here is, well, what about the community, the whole population level actions? And so in addition to, trying to make sure that people uh, have testing available, you know, the whole community has testing available and vaccinations available. Now it starts to add in, we'll take a look specifically at persons who are at high risk for severe illness and, you know, really take a look at them and assess whether, again, as a population, are there any access issues to vaccination, testing, treatment, Uh, and then also consider re... Re instituting screening testing and other strategies that might, um, and other strategies that workplaces and other settings where people are at high risk start adding that back in again, Uh, as well as other enhanced prevention measures at other high risk settings, which uh, would include face coverings, testing, uh, trying to offer vaccination boosters. Then when we move to the COVID-19 community level high, that's when it moves to saying for individuals that when they're uh, indoors in public, that regardless of their vaccination status, they should wear a well-fitting mask at that point. And then you'll see the other recommendations from the medium and low are carried forward. But what was new was adding then for the high is adding back in uh, mask wearing recommendations for everybody. And then likewise for the whole population, which is like, so say from uh, the board of health or from the county perspective, what should we be looking at for the whole population not just the individuals, which is this column, but looking at the whole population, Um, implement the healthcare surge support as needed, you know, specific recommendations for uh, certain sectors and strategies based on um, uh, circumstances. And so, I think that's, you know, your question is uh, what the CDC had in mind as they developer came up with this combination of metrics, which is to really guide what's done at a population level, which is um, what the Board of Health would be doing. And okay, that's my slide. That was gonna be the image for the flu. Uh, I am going to stop sharing this screen and instead show a screen that might have the flu information. Let's see. Oh, I have another way to be able to do. So, do you have any questions for me while I'm just making a quick snip here of the flu? Yes, Councilmember Donald. You've
1: mentioned about being up to date with the vaccine and up to date with boosters. Do you have any word about when healthy individuals should get a second booster from the CDC? Is there any? Talk about that at all, or is that still in the works?
0: That is still in the works. Uh, It's that, and which is okay. It's okay to take the time to make sure that there are enough people uh, who are in that time period and who they've had enough of an opportunity to assess whether it confers more benefit and doing that risk-benefit calculation. I will say, as the community transmission levels start to go down, it will take longer for them to be able to complete the studies if those studies are just based on people's natural interactions and not specific laboratory exposures to vaccine, excuse me, laboratory exposures to the virus. Um, But, you know, it's, sort of mixed information uh, not mixed information but the results may be beneficial maybe not that much more beneficial and so looking at how much more beneficial is it is it this much or is it that much and part of that's taken into consideration with the recommendations um, and so I will go back I froze my sp- my PowerPoint screen again. So um, uh, I'll, what I'll do is I'll describe for you the, um, what the slide should show. Okay. Well, okay. So your question while we're waiting here, uh, your question about influenza. So there has been some influenza detected this year uh, more than last year, but it's it's very low. It's been pretty steady going along here compared to years where it's up like this. Uh, so that's about the difference that there's been.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, And then uh, the, oh okay, Uh, we're back in business again. All right, Uh, now I know some people will say though, well, there isn't back, there aren't as many people testing positive for flu because people aren't being tested. That may be, it may be that some people who have influenza-like illness aren't being tested, But there's other sources of information that also are consistent with that uh, reporting of flu cases uh, in Maryland that leads me to have confidence that we do have lower circulating levels of influenza than what we typically have. And the reason why I say that is there are providers in Maryland that are participating in the sentinel network of uh, influenza. Sentinel Influenza Illness uh, Network. And they agree those private those primary care practices and emergency departments that are participating agree that so many individuals coming in who have influenza like illness, they automatically get tested and tested for influenza. And so we have quite a few ILI Sentinel providers. And when we look at both the, the Frederick County ones, participating along with the state of Maryland, uh, throughout the state of Maryland, they are also seeing very low uh, flu rates. Um, And their testing is not based on punches. Their testing is not based on whether somebody's had a COVID test or not. They're testing everybody uh, that meets just the standard criteria for the Sentinel provider network. Um, so I do believe that the influenza numbers in Maryland are low. Um, I think I have information. I think it might be this presentation that I actually have information about the numbers of deaths from flu. Maybe I don't. Um, there have been, I think so far this flu season in Maryland, maybe eight deaths attributed to flu. Um, so still very different from um, the um Uh, situation for persons who have COVID. And I would say once people get to the hospital, uh, there is an interest to make sure that whatever people have, that it's uh, identified quickly and especially something for influenza because there is a treatment for it. So I would expect that people would be tested for influenza at the hospital in addition to COVID. Um, So uh, if persons who might've had COVID and influenza and they died, I would've expected that flu would've been tested also. Uh, So I did wanna go in and talk about some of the COVID-19 activities to date. So hopefully this isn't a premature uh, uh, summary of what uh, has been done so far, but when we look at the numbers of persons that we tested, uh, we almost hit the 50,000 mark of 50,000 tests Performed by uh, our staff at the health department clinics, and we also, though, distributed like I mentioned earlier. So there are a lot of home test kits distributed. That so the ones that we received through the state, about 14,000, and the vaccinations, almost at 130,000 uh, vaccines administered by the health department. And when you look at the contact tracing interviews, so over 16,000. And I have to say that some of those interviews are 60-minute-long interviews, so that's a lot of time. Uh, and then uh, the numbers of calls that we've received, uh, both for our call center and then also responding to calls from healthcare providers, um, we fielded a lot of those. So almost, well, almost 13,000. 13, so way back when, you might remember. Back in the very beginning of December 2020, we issued a survey and asked people about their interest in vaccines. And at that time, 57% said, yes, I would like to get a COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it becomes available to them. And we had about a quarter who weren't sure and a little bit less than that who said no. So when we take a look at our vaccinations as of the beginning of March, 95% 95% of the population who is 18 plus had have at least one dose and almost 86% are fully vaccinated. So then we also asked about children and asked whether they would want to get a COVID-19 vaccine for their child as soon as it becomes available. And from the December 2020 survey, so that was before vaccine was available yet. Uh, 42% said yes. not so sure, so a higher percent not so sure, and 27% no, which was a higher percent than what we uh, had heard for the adults. So at this time, children four and four years of age and younger, they're not eligible, but when we look at the five to nine-year-old age group, about 40% are fully vaccinated and children 10 to 19, about 63% are fully vaccinated. So I'd say that, you know, the experience of the vaccinations for children in Frederick County, again, uh, is like the adult situation where more than expected uh, have been vaccinated. So um, uh, so I'd say that our vaccination efforts that they have been hugely successful, and we will continue to have COVID vaccinations available in Frederick County. So even at the point when we stand down, the clinic at Himes Avenue will continue to have vaccine available at the Frederick County Health Department. So right now, it's not we're not offering vaccine physically at the Frederick County Health Department. But eventually, it will be one of our uh, childhood vaccines that we make available to folks. And as long as the private sector is able to respond to the adults, Uh, in terms of their vaccination needs, then the private sector will be uh, handling that. Speaking of beginning to um, wind down, so when we take a look at the vaccination clinics, so at Himes Avenue, uh, we're seeing fewer people coming in on the Thursdays and Fridays. So we've uh, eliminated those days of the week and we'll only be open Wednesdays and Saturdays. Uh, And our community clinics, likewise, we've taken a look at volume there, and we still continue to see a fair amount of volume at those clinics, uh, including people who are coming in for their first dose. So we are continuing that schedule with Mondays at Thermont. Well, all of you can read on the slide. Um, Testing, also, we've seen a dramatic reduction in the testing, just as the Frederick Health Hospital has also noted, and uh, we are going to be closed now on Saturdays and Sundays because the volume's been so low on those days, and the lab that we send the samples to, they're not returning results over the weekend uh, anyway, so it's not helping people in terms of those that need results right away. And so there's that uh, map that uh, just shows all that. Um, The libraries. So the Frederick County Public Libraries, they've been wonderful. Uh, I can't say enough good things about the staff there and their willingness to help us out. So they still have test kits and masks available. And uh, when their supplies run low, then they readjust and or uh, among themselves or ask us for additional. So they've still got that at all the branches. And people are now maybe wondering, well, do I ever need to test? When should I test? So persons who have symptoms, they should test right away. Uh, if you are identified as being a close contact of someone who had COVID-19, you still should wait um, uh, five days, uh, unless you develop symptoms before then, but you should wait five days because there is an incubation period. And if you test too early, it might be a false negative just due to the fact that the virus hasn't had enough time to uh, reproduce or replicate and be detectable by the rapid at-home test. And if you're testing before a gathering, test as close to the event as possible. Now there can be false negatives with the test. So just because you test negative doesn't mean that you're not positive. Uh, And so um, we still recommend caution Uh, because the tests are not 100% accurate when it comes to uh, testing. And if you would like to report your test results, especially if you, or your positive test results, uh, the state of Maryland does have a way now uh, through COVID link at Maryland.gov to report your results, your positive results. And the reason why people would want to report their positive results is so that uh, they would be able to get a letter generated that would excuse them for work or give them the return to work letter and also it has a link to some helpful resources if individuals might need some resources in order to effectively isolate uh, during the isolation period. So, I do want to say some of you might be aware that FDA recalled some test kits that were uh, not authorized uh, and uh, there were names, on those test kits that match the names of the test kits that we uh, received through the state of Maryland and had made available locally. But the good news is, is that they were not the products that we distributed. They do have similar names. So in the red here, not FDA authorized is the Celotron here in the green. That's not what we had and the FloatFlex, with the mostly blue block, blue box. Our flex was the white box. Uh, and then um, there was another test that we didn't have that brand here. So I just wanted to let everybody know that none of these kits were distributed by us or by the Frederick County Public Libraries. And uh, that looks like that is the end of my slideshow I'm going to try one more time to copy and paste that flu so that you can see it there we go it's working this time so I am going to share my screen one more time after I enlarge this just so that you have the opportunity to be able to see it. All right. So it's not the largest screen that you can see here. Are, are you seeing the web page? You're, or are you're you seeing the title slide? Slide. slide. Uh, so you can see here, so this is the season by year. Uh, last year is this blue line. So this is Maryland influenza, the laboratory, test percent positive. So the percent of tests that are sent up to the Excuse me, the percent of flu tests performed by laboratories um, for Maryland residents. Uh, the percent that were positive, very low, hovering around, you know, I don't know, that five percent last year. This year we had a little bit of a bump uh in the fall, and it looks like we're going up a little bit again. Hard to tell. There is some variation. Uh, Now, when we look at the red line here, that was the 2019 to 2020 year. And look at this. So we had a pretty significant flu season heading into January. So this is January, 2020, February, March, and then all of a sudden you see a tremendous plummet. That happens to be when the COVID started picking up. Uh, But we had had a pretty significant early flu season. So if you recall before COVID started, people were really, really sick. Uh, And you might still hear people say, well, I think I had COVID way at the very beginning because I was really sick and I never get that sick. Well, we did have a pretty significant flu season uh, in that 2019, 2020 year. And then by comparison, the 2018, 2019 year, um, you'll see it's a more typical pattern that year because when we, uh, right here, week one is uh, January. So most, Often, So 60% of the years, the flu season peaks January or later, and 50% of the years, the flu season peaks February or later. I know a lot of people think that the flu season is in the fall. Well, actually, the flu season is uh, later in the year, um, most commonly um, after January or January or later. There we go. any questions
3: from that council Member McKay all right so just um uh, I know councilmember donald was asking questions earlier in terms of you know planning ahead for in case things get worse and drawing then drawing upon the CDC guidelines in terms of the both from the at the community level what they recommend based on the different the the new levels as well as for the individuals so taking the other one um so we're at low right now and reading on the website masks are no longer requirement required are no longer recommended in all indoor public places now if we had reason if you had reason to call a meeting like by around that time frame of march 22nd even go out a few weeks but not too far you know not may is there any reason you wouldn't be recommending that we meet in person with the public present at this point in terms of, ta- you know, looking at what the implications are for from the new CDC um, uh, guidelines?
0: So let me make sure I understand the circumstance. So you're asking about in-person meeting, yep. and in-person meeting with the public, yep, for a board of health meeting, yep. And would the would the meeting be called because of rising cases
3: for whatever reason, no, let's just say you have we have reason to meet. It's in that vicinity of March 22nd. We're at low, maybe even below sub- substantial at that point, based on your projections at that point. Is there any reason if you had reason for us to meet that we wouldn't be in person with the public present? That's I'm looking for your recommendation. For that scenario,
0: uh, you yeah. know, I think with the, uh, the I, I, part of that should still consider. I would say taking a look at the community transmission and the um, the rate of individuals, the rate of transmission, and the reason why I say that is because that reflects what the likelihood is of individuals who are present to currently be infectious. And you know, then it, it depends on the other potential layers, protective layers that are in place. Because uh, as we've talked about, not none of the layers are 100% protective, I guess unless we talk about people never venturing out, but we know that's not, feasible or desirable at all. But so when we're talking about people out and about, what are those other controls? If it's one person coming in, well, that doesn't seem like that would present a risk. But if you're talking about, you know, 200 people coming into the first floor hearing room, well, then depending upon what the transmission rate is, there's a good chance that somebody there might be infectious. Now, there might be hospital capacity, and that's good. Um, but you know, is it, is somebody potentially going to become infected? You know, maybe will that infection be consequential for that person? It might be. Um, but it also depends on whether people are wearing face coverings, you know, by choice or not. For some settings, there are more concerns, say, for example, for employers. So in, for the case of a Board of Health meeting, we wouldn't be having staff walking all around the people who've assembled, but like employers though, who have staff who are out and about mingling with customers for them, they might be considering requiring masks longer, requiring it for their staff, requiring it for customers uh, because of their worker safety concerns. So that's another aspect where it might not be relevant for us to think about in terms of people coming into a board of health meeting, but it would still be relevant uh, perhaps for businesses out there to take into consideration. So I think it sort of, you know, it depends on what's going on in the community. What's the community transmission? What do we expect in terms of other uh, engineering or administrative controls that are in place? Um, you
3: know. Yeah, that's why I was kind of thinking, you know, again, going back to your projection that, you know, maybe in that time frame, we're, we're out of the substantial um range for community transition transmission but but then just more broadly in terms of I mean it seems like these new guidelines are are kind of oriented towards you know how we at the community level you know kind of should be considering these issues and it also seems like it's putting a more uh, emphasis on personal responsibility in terms of individuals assessing their personal risk but also individuals, Behaving appropriately in terms of when, if they are symptomatic or if they have been exposed. So it, it and just how do we implement that and, and put it into practice? You know, um, particularly if it's going to be endemic, I mean, you know, endemic means there'll, there'll always be some level of community transmission. And yet we can't remain in this posture forever. So, um, so thinking in terms, not just. What kind of, you know, thought on regulations do we need to put in place in case things start to tip up? But what should be, we be planning to implement, you know, as things, you know, stay low um, and making those kinds of changes um, and having those discussions? That's kind of where I was going there.
0: Yeah, and so your reference to the March 22nd, you know, going back to the projections where we might at that point be having 10 cases a day. um, So in a week's time, then the 70 cases uh, out of 200,000 population, uh, you know, so what's the likelihood that one of those 70 persons, one of those 70 persons might be attending a Board of Health meeting? I don't know, you know, so pretty low. So, you know, it it really ends up being, uh, to some extent, uh, numbers, and that's what risk is, and it's about risk tolerance and where do we think we are with multiple factors, with multiple variables that impact those factors. Um, But I uh, am hopeful that we will continue to stay in the COVID-19 community level of low for a long time and that we're going to get lower than what we are now for the transmission rate. Um, So right now, we're still in the substantial uh, should be getting lower.
3: It just strikes me that the at least from the CDC guideline perspective, as opposed to staying with the, you know, the case transmission, the old guideline, that it's at least at low it shifts the risk tolerance from the community level to the individual level in terms of, you know, prioritizing individual decisions on risk tolerance as opposed to a community level decision on risk tolerance, given that new way, new measurement scale, you know. And,
0: yeah, and I, I'm not so sure that it's, it, I, I, I'm not so sure that it's weighing it more I think we just never attended to individuals, individual needs as a community and as, as as a culture here in the US. And so, yes, it's more compared to the past, but these are recommendations that for individuals that we just as a society haven't had as part of our culture unlike some other countries where people, uh, First of all, people who know their immune systems aren't working well in some other countries during cold and flu season, during the height of that, they're wearing face coverings, you know, voluntarily. And uh, persons who are, uh, say, uh, receiving chemotherapy treatments wear face coverings. Now, some people here do a lot more did during COVID and so it'll be interesting to see whether people here in the U.S. feel more comfortable, you know, one are aware of the uh, risks of airborne transmission, the potential benefit from wearing a face covering, even if other people aren't, and and whether they'll feel more comfortable wearing a face covering now that it's part of our, uh, I guess it's not quite, it's not lexicon, but it's part of our experience that, oh, there might be times where wearing a face covering is appropriate uh, and could be helpful to prevent the wearer from being exposed to as much